Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This episode is brought to you in part by Noom. Forget one-size-fits-all diets. With Noom, you get a personalized weight loss plan that's tailored to your lifestyle. No food is off limits. Enjoy your favorites while discovering healthier habits. Noom's users love the flexible approach, blending psychology and biology to help you lose weight in a way that's sustainable for you. And great news for foodies. Noom just released the Noom Kitchen Cookbook with 100 delicious, healthy recipes. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M dot Grab your copy of The Noom Kitchen wherever books are sold. This is the John Fugelsang Podcast. I'm John Fugelsang. This is SiriusXM Progress. We're at 866-997-4748. Okay, two-thirds of our panel is assembled, so let's get to it. We uh, are so lucky to have the God Squad joining us every Wednesday. Three theologians I learn a lot from and I'm very entertained by, but especially this week, because this is the week that PRRI has put out their big American Values Atlas, and it shows for the first time how you can estimate support for Christian nationalism in all 50 states. It's a huge study, over 22,000 adults, And it shows a lot of interesting results. Some might surprise you, some might not. But roughly 3 in 10 Americans qualify as Christian nationalism adherents or sympathizers. 3 in 10. And then residents of red states, it's much, much higher. Nearly 4 in 10 residents of red states are Christian nationalists. And, uh, of course... On the whole, Christian nationalism is strongly linked to Republican Party affiliation and holding favorable views of Donald Trump. And it's linked to, well, you already know uh, Christian nationalism. It means that they believe the government should declare America a Christian nation and that our laws should be based on Christian values, but not the teachings of Jesus, just his fan club's favorites. And they say that if the U.S. moves away from Christian foundations, we won't have a country anymore, that being Christian is part of being truly American, and that God has called Christians to exercise dominion over all areas of American society. Four out of 10 Republicans, three out of 10 Americans. How scared should we be? I am so thrilled to welcome the God Squad back. Keith Giles is a former pastor who left the pulpit to follow Jesus. He's an author of the best-selling Jesus Un book series, like Jesus Unarmed, Jesus Unchained, um, for people who are deconstructing their faith. And he's a regular contributor to the Patheos Progressive Christian blog platform and co-founder of Choir Publishing. Keith, welcome back. It's so good to see you. It is so good to be back. I missed you, John. We took a little break there, and it's it's great to be back in the saddle again. Thank you. Yeah, I was trapped in L.A. with family. It was hell. Uh, December Rose is with us, the former pastor of the Restoration Center in Greenville, South Carolina, and the Rock Worship Center in West Union, South Carolina. She is the author of The Church Can Go to Hell, a jaw-dropping memoir and theological dive into the toxic reality of church culture. And she's also an incredible spoken word artist spreading the gospel of grace through love, truth, and radical hospitality. I like this woman to a very deeply unhealthy degree. Pastor Rose, it's good to see you. Welcome back. Hey, boo, it's been a minute. I shouldn't yes. have left you without a dope thought to think to. Think to. It's good to be with y'all tonight. <laughs> it's, I'm, I'm, I'm just happy. I, listen, I'm just like Ringo. I'm just glad to be here. And uh, I'm always <laughs> glad to see you. I'm also always glad to see Dylan Cruz, who's a writer, a theologian, a permaculture enthusiast from Lancaster, Pennsylvania. His book is Theological Musings, Volume 1. It's a terrific collection of essays all about political, social, environmental concerns in the U.S. and around the world. He is also a former member of the U.S. Armed Forces, and we are always thrilled to have Dylan, December, and Keith join us. God Squad, assemble. Welcome back. (laughs) It's good to be here. It's good to see you all. I don't want to spend too much time on Christian nationalism, but I wanted to ask if you had any thoughts about the big PRRI survey. It really seems... uh, What we already know, and that among those who hold favorable opinions of Donald Trump, 55% qualify as Christian nationalists. 
And yet I could not tell you a single actual teaching of Jesus that Donald Trump or the Republican Party have fought for this century. Keith, were you yeah. at all surprised by these results? It seems like well, more no. the same. No, it is it is more the same. Like you said, kind of confirming what we already knew. It, but it is very helpful, I think, to have the actual numbers and to see. Again, it's kind of depressing to see that uh, there were five states that more than 45 percent of the residents. Mm-hmm. Think about that. It's close to half of the residents are identified as Christian nationalists, adherents or sympathizers. Uh, the, I guess the the bottom, the, the five are North Dakota, Mississippi, Alabama, West Virginia and Louisiana. Yeah. So yep. at least we can identify where they are, who they are. Um, oh yeah, and it's it's very sad. I will say one thing I, when I, when I was looking through the uh, the report, one thing that did jump out at me, it said that these Christian nationalists say they are more likely than other Americans um, to uh, to trust uh, Fox News <laughs> as their primary news source. And what I, do you know? To give them to give them accurate information, and I laughed out loud when I saw that. I was like, wait a minute. Isn't Fox News the only news source that was found guilty in a court of law for knowingly misrepresenting the facts and lying to their listeners about the last election? Weren't they fined something like $787 million? How are Fox News viewers supposed to know that fact? Exactly, because they didn't report that. So you Because they watch Fox News. Exactly. 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 If your daddy tells you everything, you don't know what your daddy does when he's not around. And that's why they trust Fox News. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Keep them dumb. Keep them dumb and angry. It seems to work. Pastor Rose, I mean, I'm not worried about these people taking over, but I am worried about them hurting a lot of people as they try to. Yeah, well, I'm not, I'm, I look, I ain't scared of them motherfuckers, but I will tell you this. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what Bernie Mac said. I ain't scared of y'all motherfuckers. But, that's right. That was but, um, yep, I will say this Trump has only done, Trump has not created anything, Trump has not done anything necessarily new. What he has done is expose what existed. Mm-hmm. If you ask black people, they will say, oh, there's always been this divide. Yeah. You know, there's always been been this thing and then we get accused of pulling the race card or being overly sensitive or whining and complaining. But what what has happened is Trump has just simply pulled the covers off of everybody. Yeah. There's nothing new. There's nothing new going on. I promise you there's nothing new going on. I promise you there's not any more new Christian nationalists. There's not any more new white nationalists. There's not any more new racist. There's not more racism than there ever was. It, it always been like this. It's just that Trump gave these people permission to stop being cute about it. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah, to stop I, I, being I like... cute, to stop being coy. That's to it. Stop covering it up with, you know, political correctness. He gave them permission to be yeah. the bigots and the racists and the homophobes and whatever else you want to drop in there that they are in the daylight. Yeah. That's all he has done. You know how I phrase it? I always say America is like an old couch and Donald Trump is a black light. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that nasty was there for a long time. Yeah, long he time. made it shine and shimmer. Yeah. Yeah. Dylan, on that disgusting note, what are your thoughts on uh, on the latest study? <laughs> yeah, that's an image I'm not going to get out of my head for a while, John. Thanks for that. Um, there were a couple things in the report that stood out to me, uh, and one of them is kind of hopeful. Uh, 67% of Americans are either rejectors or do not sympathize or are skeptical of Christian nationalism. That's that's yeah. important to know right. because um, there's a lot more of us than there are of them. Right. One of the things that was terrifying, though, is in the report is that the Christian nationalist adherents are now starting to say out loud uh, more and more that political violence may be necessary. No, of course it is. And so these are the way. ones who are the these war. are the ones who worship the, the the Second Amendment like it's some kind of golden fucking calf. Boom. And so they they're armed to the teeth. Another thing that that really struck out yeah. is that that a lot of Christian nationalist adherents are they don't have a college degree. So critical thinking skills are something that a lot of times people do develop when they go to college, especially if they go through humanities courses, which you see the right wing trying to just obliterate right now because you you've got David Barton saying he's the world's premier fucking historian, which is like calling Eric Metaxas a Bonhoeffer scholar. It's not. <laughs> <laughs> so yep. that's that's important. And 
and they often are aligned with charismatic Christianity and the prosperity gospel. Sure, sure. And charisma daily is a thing that uh, I saw people went in seminary reading to much to my horror. And what is charisma daily? I'm sorry. I'm not that deep in the life. Uh, it's, it's a news organization for charismatics. Basically. There's a lot okay. of conspiracy. Yeah. Right. A lot of conspiracy theories, a lot of, um, prophecy, really? it's, it's not all about helping the poor and welcoming the stranger and caring for the sick. <laughs> really? That's not what the charismatics no, focus on. No, no, you won't find a whole lot of that, but you'll find a lot of people prophesying about things, uh, how things are going to be and, and how Trump is Cyrus and, and exactly and all of that kind of thing. The right wing Christian blasphemer entertainment complex. Yes. yes. Yeah. Yeah. Boom. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, I, I, I'd be most remiss if I didn't ask you guys about these embryo personhood laws, which seem to be, uh, you know, that's the new hot thing. And I didn't have it on my bingo card for this new year. Alabama, which um, just executed a person. <laughs> With with a nitrogen gas, the first time a person's ever been murdered by a government with nitrogen gas, and it was botched and it was horrible. Well, it turns out they're really pro life and they believe all life is sacred. Um, and so they are now saying that a frozen baby pop is the same as an actual baby, as you guys know. It's crazy, but uh, some Republicans, like Donald Trump, seem to be doing damage control. Other Republicans are charging right into the crazy. Pastor Rose, let me go with you, since you're the person here with a uterus. I mean, this is the most anti-life, anti-family, anti-child thing they could have done. What kind of superstitious, irreligious, has nothing the hell to do with Jesus bullshit is this? In vitro fertilization? I mean, even Donald Trump said, letting letting people have children. Nothing to do with Jesus bullshit. That's what you just what you said. That's what. (laughs) And if you remember, I mentioned this a couple episodes ago, and I said it. It, we're going to slip and slide into it. We're going to start getting into the in vitro. Where I, I mentioned this mm-hmm. because, you know, it's not, you can't just stop there. When you start dibbing and dabbing in, in things to do with life, period, it's all, all factions and matters of life are going to come into play. All of it's going to enter into the game. And now we're out here in Never Neverland in the Twilight Zone, right? Where somebody's saying, this this thing that you've done now here's the thing i will say this much there is a potential for life there okay yes. we can acknowledge that yes but it is not living until it's alive yeah. because even these yeah. mothers and my heart goes out to all these mothers that are going have gone through this process and are going through this process is very painstaking okay it's so emotional. It can be a very painful thing when you do get all the way through that process and they do put the eggs in you and they still don't make it. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. the the common sense and the logic, it just, the, the thought process behind that just doesn't even make sense. Because even if you handle that potential for life with mm-hmm. the utmost care, and I, I believe that these clinics do because they understand what's at risk. Right. Yeah. Somebody's yeah. ability to have a family, to have their dream, to be a mother, to be a father. This is a big deal. It's a big deal. And you, even if you handle that potential with the utmost care and respect and honor that it deserves and deliver it into uh, the uterus of the mother and, and half of the time it still doesn't make it That's for right. whatever reason, how can you come to the conclusion? And this is why the clinics are like, whoa, hands off. That's right. Because we can't afford for you to tell us we committed homicide. That's it. When we're doing everything we can to help That's people it. have a family. And the pe- the victims on the other side of this men- of this control women and their bodies at all costs mentality and policies is people is the women who really do want a family and really are trying to bring life into the world and really are quote pro life. That's the victims on the other side of this crazy ass stop process. Yeah. And the ones that are backtracking, good luck. The cat's out of the bag now. Pandora's box is open. Y'all got to wear this bullshit all the way down. You're in for a penny, you're in for a pound. You're going to have to wear this all the way down to hell with Donald Trump. I mean, they, they're, I they're already you, realizing what a loser it is. Women, just as yeah. many as there are Democratic women, independent and everywhere in between who are hoping and praying for a family and the only way they can do it is do this way. 
that are going to suffer at the other end of this. They can't stop finding new ways to make women and non-white people and non-Christian people and young people not want to vote for them. Keith, let, let me ask you. It seems to be their is, agenda. Yeah. 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 But what what is what is their biblical argument against IVF? Like, we already know the Bible's not against abortion, but they'll uh, quote Jeremiah out of context. They'll say, thou mm-hmm. shalt not kill. What, what, what is the argument against in vitro fertilization that's based in the Bible? I know you don't agree with it, but do you yeah. even know what it could be? Yeah, well, when I, okay, well, um, I used to be one of these people, right, yeah. in my other life. Uh, I was straight-ticket Republican, listened to Rush Limbaugh, uh, remember the NRA, had a whole bunch of guns, lived in Texas, right? I was deep, deep, deep into this stuff. And when I was in that stuff, uh, when I was in that worldview, I mean, I think the only verse I ever heard quoted that sort of, kind of, uh, supported this idea of, you know, life begins at conception is when David in the Psalms says, you know, uh, again, poetically in the Psalms that, you know, before I was in my, uh, before I was born in my mother's womb, you knew me. Um, and that's supposed to mean, well, see, if God knew David in the womb, that means he was alive. He was, he was a person in the womb. In the yeah, that's Jeremiah um, but, as well. Right. Yeah. But th- this idea is, um, again, it's, it's taking something poetic out of context, uh, if you ask people, again, these are the Hebrew scriptures. So if we go and ask uh, Jew, people in Judaism, we ask, you know, if we go and look at what they primarily believe, they'll argue that from Exodus, that the idea is that life begins when the first breath is taken. Um, and that's why, right. like, if you go to Israel, the nation of Israel right now, abortion is free and legal, and we're giving exactly. them money for it. It's just exactly. kind of crazy. So it doesn't make sense. I, I I will say, though, here's the thing, though, that's a very I don't know if I don't want to if it's hypocritical. I think it's even I think it's more along the lines of what we were, we were saying previously. Like, um, I think I think Republicans are so excited about this issue for so long. Some of them are true believers in this. I think they see it more than just a political thing. They think they really do believe this stuff, um, that they're doing some good by passing these kinds of laws. Um, but it's, I think it's the case of sort of like, oops, we've, we actually did the thing that we maybe we shouldn't have gone this far. And now they're having to like backpedal. But uh, I don't know if people knew, as I was doing some research on this, um, what I found was this really shocked me. Um, Nikki Haley, Chief Justice John Roberts and Mike Pence have all said that they have used IVF and even our good friend, governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, Mm -hmm. uh, after this passed, he was quoted as saying, I'm not sure everyone has really thought about what all the potential problems are. So um, I think a few of them are starting to realize maybe this is taking it a bit too far and we'll see. But like, can they walk it back? I don't know. Yeah. I mean, what are you going to do? I mean, Dylan, I was thinking about it. If, 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 you know, I knew you in the womb before I knew you in the womb. Well, if frozen embryos are not in a womb yet. So does that mean the government is going to forcibly put them into a womb? Uh, I want to get your take, Dylan, before the break. Well, Keith's right. Judaism sees life at the moment of birth. And you can follow. Uh, I don't know if she's still on Twitter anymore because it's such a hellscape. But Rabbi Dania uh, Rutenberg. Yeah, she's great. I I quoted her in my book on uh, in the essay about abortion and gun rights and um, pollution uh, decisions that SCOTUS made last year. She's you know, she's very clear. Judaism life begins at birth. But what what gets me is and I think Jesus would call them out as as hypocrites the way he often did is this attempt to pretend that they didn't know that this was coming. They didn't know that this is what's what's happening. Yeah. Like Michelle, uh, what's her name? Michelle Steele. Mm. Now she's, she said, I had a kid with IVF. This is a, you know, this is a bad precedent to be setting, but literally on January 12th, she co-sponsored HR 431 that says life begins at conception. Mm. One, Mm. one month apart. Yeah. So did Mike Johnson. Mm. And if you don't believe me, go to the Congress website and look up H.R. 431 and see all the fucking 124 Republicans who co-sponsored this nonsense. Amazing. Amazing. Mm-hmm. And they're going to go to war. I can't remember this. the exact verse yeah. in Exodus, but it's I think it's in Exodus 32 somewhere where if the uh, if somebody hits a pregnant woman in the stomach, and she loses Exodus the baby. Yeah. yeah. Thank yeah. you. 
they have to they have to give them an ox or something. Yeah. Right. Yeah. If you if it's you not an pre- eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. Yeah. It's if like you kill the, the pregnant woman, property. you kill the pregnant woman. It's 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 you pay with your life. You kill right. the fetus. Right. You pay the father a fine because the fetus is the man's property. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. So yeah. this idea that you can take this frozen thing that has no sentience and call it a child is batshit insane. Yeah. You know what? And this is the doubling down that I was talking about when we did the year in show. (laughs) I'm like, they're going to, they're going to keep going with this stuff until they they run headlong into a brick wall. Mm -hmm. You're exactly right, sir. We we have to take a break. Can y'all stay with us for the rest of the hour? We'll be right back in just two minutes. And this is Sirius XM progress. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. I'm John Fugel saying this is Sirius XM Progress. My cat is really excited and getting on the console, and we are here with the God Squad. It is great to see Keith Giles, Pastor December Rose, and Dylan Neighbor Cruz, and we're taking your calls at 866-997-4748. Uh, I wanted to ask if uh, you guys had any thoughts. I'll start with you, Dylan, on um, this horrible instances of uh, self-immolation and protest of the genocide in Gaza. I, I got to say, uh, I... I, I have a lot of nostalgia for 1960s things, but not for not for this. I, I admire anyone's conviction, but the horror, the horror that leads someone to commit an atrocity on themselves is just more than my heart can bear some days. What, what did you think of that 25-year-old serviceman's sacrifice outside the Israeli embassy? It's it's hard to to put into words. You know, we've all we're all old enough to have seen the picture of the monk from 1963 in Vietnam. And to have that kind of conviction, to make that extreme a statement, I think just speaks to the horrific nature of what's happening in Mm. Gaza right now. And I saw something today, and I'm not saying that this is what happened. I'm saying that this is how it was reported. He was in the end military intelligence community. So ostensibly he had intelligence information saying that US troops are on the ground and are participating in the killing of Palestinians. Yeah, there's a lot of things that the media didn't report about this story. That's that's one of the details. Right. And if that's true, I'm almost certain that our government's going to lie to us about it. Uh, I've I've read enough government documents doing historical research as primary source documents to know that that's kind of how this shit works. But even if it's not true, he has thrust. And there was another person who did this in Atlanta a couple months ago, too, whose name and gender and all of that was not released. These two people have thrust this into our faces in a way that is absolutely shocking uh and and horrifying yeah and yet it's not as shocking and horrifying as what's happening in gaza yeah for which there is no justification yeah completely i mean it's it's netanyahu trying to keep himself out of jail and thirty thousand dead civilians and it's not making israel safer 
And it's only going to inspire new generations of terrorists. It's not making America safer. It's not making Joe Biden's job safer. It's not helping anyone but Netanyahu stay get one more day out of prison. Pastor Rose, Keith, what what were your thoughts on on this, if any? I'm I'm like with Dylan. It's hard to put into words. And there's a this is going to probably sound strange, and then maybe not. I have an extreme sense of admiration for somebody like that. I feel yeah. like what they did is both tragic and courageous, if that's possible. I get to it. Have. Yeah. Um, I can, I, man, if I get hand sanitizer and a paper cut, I'm on some other stuff. So I setting yourself on fire to show the world, uh, to bring attention to something that's so, um, detrimental to your well-being, to your mental health, to your emotional well-being, to your spiritual well-being, to have so much of yourself wrapped up in a cause where you are willing to give your life for it. Um, I don't know what to say to that except for to say, um, may he rest in peace. Now he has peace, I pray. I hope so. Um, But it did bring, if, if anything happened from it, I do believe that he accomplished his mission, which was... I, which was to bring attention to the atrocity that is being committed at the hands of the Israeli government and the aiding and abetting that is taking place by the United States government. Now, I will say this. I am not one of those people in the camp of Biden could stop all this if he wanted to. I, I don't believe right. that. I don't believe he has that much power. Yeah. And I, I believe that, that. Um, people who say something like that are either misinformed or delusional. That is a sovereign nation. Biden could only do so much. He could only say so much. Can he pull back the purse strings? Yes. Can he get on national TV and condemn some things? Yes. There's a few things. Can he not exercise veto power or the ceasefire with the United Nations or however that stuff is working? Yes. There's a handful of things that he can do. Yeah. But I'm going to tell you what he can't do. He can't make Netanyahu do a damn thing. No, it's true. But he I think there are a lot of people. But you know, there's a lot of people who want to hear Biden speak more forcefully about this. There's a lot of folks yes. who, oh, who really yeah. are, are holding their enthusiasm for this incumbent in the campaign in check until mm-hmm. they hear him speak more forcefully about this. Keith, I do. Any... I, I, I do. I'm just a realist. Yeah. Just, yes. just, oh, I understand I, I that there's right. only so many. He only got so many plays on the board. With, totally a, with right. a sovereign nation that can do whatever the fuck they want to do. Yeah. You know, there's, not... so, there's only so much he can do. Yeah, you're exactly right. Keith, did yeah. you have any thoughts on this? Yeah, I will say, um, I, I agree with everything you we've all said so far. Um, I'll just say that I'm, I'm the father of two young men who are about the same age as Aaron Bushnell. And um, when I saw that story, I saw his picture, I, I saw the video, it was... Uh, terrified me it's it broke my heart i mean i i totally agree with what why he did it uh, i understand the conviction that drove him to do that um it terrifies me that my sons or other people's sons and daughters might want to do the same but but because i know i feel i feel their frustration i feel their sense of injustice yeah. i do feel that it's it is driven so much i think even by like what uh december was saying the fact that we have young people, they see this happening, they see a genocide happening in their generation, in their lifetime, and they see that their president isn't doing anything. Not that he could just snap his fingers and make it stop, but you know, to at least see that he would stand up, that he would say something, that he would that he would right. uh, allow there to be a call for a ceasefire at the UN, that he would you know that he would threaten at least threaten to to like hold back on something like the fact there's been no action at all. Um, is very frustrating, and I I, th- I hope it doesn't. Um, I hope that what Aaron has done is enough to have us really taking this seriously. Hopefully, to have even Biden and his administration taking this seriously, um, because they're not the, again. We've had two young people do this in our nation already. Um, I hope there aren't any more, and I hope it doesn't take any more for us to begin to take some action. 
Keith, on, on, on a totally different note, I just want to ask you, what's going on there at the, in, in, in Texas with Franklin Graham and this border tour? Yeah. I mean, I know what a revoltingly fake Christian he is, and the only commandment in the Bible about immigration is to welcome the stranger. What is this charlatan doing now with this Frontera tour? Right. Well, again, let's keep in mind, as you said, let's remind everybody who this guy is. Franklin Graham, yes, he's the son of the great Billy Graham, but he's also the guy who, like I think a month or so ago, um, was actually quoted as saying that immigration was not uh, an issue of faith or wasn't a Christian issue. I'm like, yeah, That's I guess right. he's not read that Bible. <laughs> but yep. he literally said that. I was like, are you kidding me, dude? Yeah, uh, the Bible has a, a lot to say, as you said, John, about the way to treat the immigrant and the stranger and the alien among you. Uh, and it's always with love and compassion um, and in very intentional, you know, handfuls on purpose of blessing. Um, so anyway, this is the guy who has decided that um, that immigration is such a big problem. It's a tour he's doing. It's a 10 city tour. It's already started. Um, it's it's Brownsville, Texas. He's going to be coming in my backyard in El Paso this weekend on Sunday. Um, and uh, the, the tour is called Frontera, which is Spanish for the border. So, of course, this is his issue. If you go to the website, he's talking about that, you know, the reason he has to do this, the reason he's, is because Americans on the border are hurting and they're scared and they need hope. And he's coming to bring them the message of hope. And I let me listen. I'll tell you, um, having Franklin Graham come to your city and do a big crusade with basically a, a Christian concert. There's like six different bands that are playing mm-hmm. um, do a big Christian concert and come out and talk for 30 minutes about how Jesus loves you isn't going to solve the border issue. And I kind of suspect he knows that. And I kind of suspect that's why he probably will say more then Jesus loves you. I'm, I'm pretty exactly. sure he's going to uh, advocate for a certain candidate who can solve this problem that is so, it's such a horrible, huge problem that we got to make sure we don't solve it before Trump can get in there and fix it, right? You're right. And it's also going to be a big commercial for Franklin Graham and his business. Oh, well, business, that's the bottom line. His that's business exactly right. disguised the as a church. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, Dylan, I'll never stop being shocked at these anti-immigration alleged Christians. Right. If anybody wants to get a quick down and dirty primer on this, there's a there's a piece on my blog, Tattooed Theologian, called Let's Get Biblically Literal on Immigration. Mm. Uh, and I go through a bunch of the verses that talks about how you're supposed to love them and treat them as if they were a citizen of your own country. That's right. Yes. How do we see but, that, Dylan? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, TattooedTheologian.com. Great. Franklin is the son, as as uh, Keith noted, of Billy Graham, and as Dr. Kevin Cruz and others have noted, Cruz have noted, Billy Graham was instrumental in getting Christian nationalism to be a mainstream thing in the in America in the 1950s yep. through the 70s and 80s. Yep. So the apple doesn't fall terribly far from the tree when it comes to the Grams mm-hmm. and great their to- own fucked up theology of Christian libertarianism, which is, if if there's a marriage made in hell, it's fundamentalist Christianity and libertarianism. I completely agree. I just, I want to give Franklin Graham some credit for taking a break from hating Muslims. Now he's hating Christians (laughs) from our own hemisphere. We got to hit another break. Will y'all please stay with us till the top of the hour? Right Right back with the God Squad. This is Progress. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I'm John Fugel saying this is progress. We are with the God Squad in our final minutes. Keith, I know you had something to say about uh, about Franklin Graham. Yeah, just real quick, just to kind of a postscript on that. There's 20,000 people so far that have signed petitions uh, against Franklin Graham and the stupid tour. So there's some little, you know, a ray of sunshine there. And I just had to say something my dad told me all the time. Um, there's two types of people you should never trust. Uh, a politician who tells you how to pray and a religious leader who tells you how to vote. Boom. Mm-hmm. Love it. We've only got like a minute and a half left, but Keith, can you tell me a bit about this courage tour in the swing states? Because this is also crazy, but it seems designed to get right wing Christians to vote exactly how they were going to vote already. Yeah, I think Dylan actually had some things on that. I'm sorry, Dylan. Yes, please. Yeah. Yeah, this is uh, this is the brain trust of 
Lance Wall now and the intellectual giant that is Charlie Kirk. Oh, um, balloon yeah. head. So, <laughs> yeah. So they're going to hit seven swing states with their prophetic get out the vote America first thing. So if you are in Arizona, Michigan, uh, Wisconsin, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Nevada, or North Carolina, be on the lookout for these charismatic Christian nationalists who talk out both sides of their mouth and pretend that they're not the fascist and that they're not trying to control women's bodies when that's exactly what they're trying to do. And what they're trying, they're trying to energize their base to get out the vote. And Charlie Kirk says he has 2,500 churches on board with the America First movement. So I'm hoping that the IRS uh, starts to kick it up a notch with that Johnson Amendment. Oh, look at you. I love it. By the way, I want to apologize, Charlie Kirk, because I, I did agree with him on something this week. He said that he wants executions to be put on TV. And so do I. I actually agree with him because I think nothing would end executions in this country faster than putting them on TV and letting these alleged Christians see what our taxes are going to. Guys, this was way too quick tonight. I'm so glad to be back with you. Before we go, how can our listeners follow you and keep up with all your work? Pastor Rose, please, how can how can our our evil army of the night stalk you and follow all your your ministry? (laughs) I'm online as December Rose and that is D-E-S-I-M-B-E-R. Rose, look me up on all platforms. I don't know. I'll act. I'm not that active all the time, but you can come see what I'm doing if you want. <laughs> right on. Keith, how do we follow you? Yeah, uh, my blog is KeithJaws.com. I Jesus Unbooks and Solo Mysterium and all those are on Amazon. And um, my podcast is Second Cup with Keith. Check it out. And Dylan Neighbor Cruz. Uh, TattooTheologian.com is my blog. My book is Theological Musings, and America should read it. Uh, and I'm all over social media. Right on. Guys, I love this segment. Our listeners love it. Thank you so much for classing up this dump of a show. Quick break. We'll be right back. This is Progress. Welcome back to SiriusXM. I'm John Fugelsang. Now, we're going to talk about uh, the white folks we know and love who live in what we call the voting against their own interest belt. Many times we have wondered, and we talk about it on this show and this channel all the time, how is it election after election, our conservative white American brothers and sisters keep on electing politicians who promise to make their lives great again. But what they get instead are policies that result in making the rich richer and putting those white Americans who place their trust in these conservative politicians at an even greater risk of sickness and health. Racial resentment and fears of white people no longer being on top have fueled pro-gun laws. They fueled pollution. They fueled resistance to the Affordable Care Act, cuts to schools, cuts to social services. And we know how much these policies cost our society with failing life expectancies, deaths by gun suicide, and rising dropout rates. Jonathan Metzl, is the Frederick Rentschler Professor of Sociology and Psychiatry at Vanderbilt University and the Director of their Department of Medicine, Health, and Society. He's written five books. He's a prominent expert on gun violence, and his new book is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland. It is a book that will be very uncomfortable for some to read, and everyone must because it shows those right-wing backlash policies have deadly consequences, more often than not, for the white folks who have been suckered into voting for them. It is a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Metzl to SiriusXM. Hello, sir. Thanks so much. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Thank you for doing this book. I'm, I'm fascinated by your methodology. You, in the book, have divided into three parts, Missouri, Tennessee, and Kansas. And it's really amazing how each different state is a case study where these right-wing policies have caused a measurable increase in death among the white voters. I, I got to begin with the most obvious question. I, you researched this book for 10 years, long before anybody could have predicted the Trump presidency or the pandemic. What first motivated you, doctor, to begin this work? Well, thank you so much. And it's great to have this conversation. I just want to clarify one thing, which is that the the hardcover, the hardcover version of the book came out in 2019. 
And so this is the paperback now that is that is coming out. Um, yes. And, and so and so this is like in a way the revised version, of, an updated version of the argument that I've been making, as you say, for ten years now. So um, so part of the story is the whole project, which is now an ongoing project, started when I was doing a series of focus groups around the Affordable Care Act when it came out in Tennessee in 2012, 2013. Um, and we would, uh, my grad students and I would go into these very low income areas and we would ask people, hey, look, there basically there's there's free healthcare coming and the people we were interviewing were quite chronically ill. And what we found kind of across the board is that when we spoke with black Americans, they were like, you know, thank God somebody's going to help us pay for our prescription drugs or this country needs it finally. You know, it's great for our country to have healthcare. When we we would talk to poor white Americans, more often than not, and this is well before Trump was even a candidate, um, people would say, you know, I know this this project might help me, this new healthcare thing might help me, but to quote one of the guys I interview in the beginning of the book, ain't no way I want my tax dollars going to help Mexicans or welfare queens. And so this idea that basically even if a social program was going to help them, they didn't want to they didn't want to be part of a of a of a program where they thought their quote unquote tax dollars, even though a lot of them weren't paying taxes, were going to help people who were racial others. And what I what I found in the research was that those attitudes were as dangerous to the very people who were espousing those attitudes as were asbestos or secondhand smoke or driving in a seatbelt without a car. Literally, ideology became a risk factor that shortened people's lifespans. And so in the book, I just ask, you know, what's the trade-off, right? People are not stupid. What What's the trade-off? Why are people making decisions that are shortening their own lifespans? It's fascinating and heartbreaking because you'd think that some folks would have a resistance because, say, they've been told it was socialism. That was a very common refrain, despite the fact that the Affordable Care Act was the opposite of socialism. It made people buy a private product. But what you're talking about here harkens back to how they broke up the unions. The whole notion of uh, white people who have been socialized or groomed to believe that if someone not white gets what I have, that somehow I'm losing something. Is that it? Yeah. And just, I mean, there was a lot of, I found there was a lot of shame and a lot of anger in, in a lot of these things because the data was, I mean, in a way data was like the least convincing retort that I could give people, but the data was pretty clear. I mean, I spoke to people who were on death's doorstep, often had kidney failure or liver failure. And, and, and many people also had severe financial problems from being unable to afford medical treatment. Um, but the idea that they were going to be put in a in a bin with people who they saw as less deserving was something that was unimaginable in a tribal sense in, in a way. And so part of the argument of the book was just the power of um, what Du Bois once called the wage of whiteness, this idea that basically people feel like they're in a category that has psychological value, even if it doesn't have any material value, that to be white the definition of what it meant to be white was to be better than these other people. Um, yes. And that to me was, to, you know, again, I compare it to, I compare it to other known risk factors like secondhand smoke. And it turned out this ideology was doing just as good a job as at shorting people's lifespan. So that was part of the story, but I want to be clear. The other part of the story is that if white people had embraced the affordable care act across the South, it would have been terrible for, Republicans. And so in a way, they were also doing what they needed to do, putting their bodies on the line to keep their party in power. And so it was a strategic move also that I, I don't think is just about health. They were also, you know, I think quite consciously martyrs in, in a certain kind of way. Yeah. Taking one for the team rather than yeah. give a win to the person we oppose who's trying to keep us from dying. I mean, it, it, it boggles the mind. And I would imagine you've had a lot of pushback from your title, uh, which I think is brilliant, but uh, it is very intriguing. What does it mean in simple layman's terms to die of whiteness? Well, I just want to be clear. I don't mean whiteness as a biological category, as a genetic category. <laughs> oh, I know. Category. Oh, I know. I'm just I know. saying it's, it's important to it's important to say that. Um, yeah. And, and, but, but I'm saying that what I mean is a kind of ideology that is anti-immigrant, anti-government, pro-gun, 
anti-connection. So in a, in a way, it's the ideology. I mean, many many people yes. who espouse this weren't biologically quote unquote white if there is such a thing and so yes. part of the story was that that this that this ideology that used to be an extreme fringe ideology kind of the question i ask in the book is how did people how did people how did that fringe ideology become the mainstream in a way yeah as you say in the book it's a narrative about how whiteness becomes a formation worth living and dying for, and how, in myriad ways and on multiple levels, white Americans bet their lives on particular sets of meanings associated with whiteness, even in the face of clear threats to mortality or to common sense. It, it, it really does seem that it is defining, as you put it, the boundaries of white America in relation to real or imagined others who want to take what, what it has or be what it is. It really just plays on racial anxiety. And it's a way that white people have been manipulated for generations to vote against their own interest. And, and it's also, I have to be honest, terrifying. Um, what I wrote, um, the, the, the new version that just came out the first week of April, this is the new paperback. Um, and what I wrote in the new forward of this book was that, um, you know, and you could take a health lens and say, look, I can quantify the people are dying of this ideology, but there's also something pretty terrifying about people who are knowingly dying for an ideology. I think that's also something to be taken seriously um, yeah. because I I don't know a lot of people who would say, I'm willing to lay down on the train tracks so that my team can win, but that's part of what I found. And it, and it was, I guess, less imposing in 2012 when I was doing my first round of research for this. But now, I mean, I, I keep remembering 2013, I think we were doing an interview and I said, Hey, look, man, you know, you have kidney failure, getting treatment would prolong your life. And the guy said, I know it would be good for me, but I know also that if people like me sign on to this program, it'll make it harder to do what I really care about, which is overturn Roe versus Wade, control the Supreme Court and have the second amendment be the law of the land across the country. And in 2013, that sounded insane. Um, but it was only because people at that time were willing to like put their body down that this came about. And so it's crazy and it's not crazy. And what I write in the new book is given how everything has happened, you know, Trump wouldn't have risen to power if people weren't willing to do what these people did. So it also, it's strategic and it's terrifying and it's mortifying, <laughs> literally. Well, I think that's why it's so important that you have uh, added to the book for the paperback release, because obviously what we witnessed during COVID-19 opened up a whole new universe of citizens willing to forfeit their own safety and the safeties of their own families and loved ones in favor of this lunatic suicidal tribalism that, as you point out, we call whiteness, but isn't limited to just Caucasians. Right. And, and and in a way, you know, the trade-off that people found a lot of times was power. It was kind of, the deal was, give me your life and I'll give you power. And that was a, that was a, willing bargain for for a lot of people i mean i I don't think they were consciously saying i want to live 4.6 years shorter or whatever my data shows in, in different parts um but i do think that they were basically making a trade-off for power for being on the winning team that they felt was in a way worth worth the trade-off that they were making but the other thing is people had been so powerfully convinced that government was imposed by liberals and so the reason I wrote the forward for the new edition is be, is also because the pandemic happened right after my, you know, right after the first version yeah. came out of the book. And I said, in a way, the pandemic just fits right into this narrative. Incredibly. So uh, in your book, you tell the story of Becca Campbell, and, and it's a, a very thought provoking tale. But you note what everyone seems to overlook in their interpretation of her death. And it's the point you make throughout the book. We lose perspective when we explain racially charged encounters in the U.S. solely on the basis of what exists in people's minds or on their individual actions. Uh, for those who don't know her story, could you briefly share it with us and, and the real lesson we should take away with us? Yeah, thank you for asking that. So the book's divided into three parts, and they're basically roughly three three states and three issues. And so I do healthcare rejection of the Affordable Care Act in Tennessee. I look at 
the ways Kansas used racial anxiety to destroy its public education system uh, based on the idea that undeserving immigrants and minorities were coming to take your tax dollars and waste them in schools. But for me, the most powerful part of this book, which actually then became my next book, um, what was about guns, uh, guns in Missouri. Yeah. And part of the story was people were like arming up against Black Lives Matter, arming up against um, protests that were happening nowhere near where they lived. But the idea that basically mm -hmm. they needed to defend their stuff or their identity or their community against often very imagined Black protesters um, yeah. was really palpable. And it drove real, um, real shifts not just in in massive gun purchases but also in decreasing white mortality i show how missouri became the number one state for gun suicide uh, around around that time and so wow. part of the story um the becca campbell who I, I finished the book with becca campbell um is somebody who she was in st louis and there were the the post michael ferguson first kind of black lives matter um uh, uh, uh um uh protests happening in Ferguson, Missouri at the time after the after after the shooting, the police shooting in Missouri. And um and and what I found was that people were arming up because of the imagined fear of black protesters. And this was a woman who bought a gun for the first time, was waving it around in her car, and ultimately ended up getting an offender bander. The car went off and she tragically shot herself in the head and died. And so for me, this was a powerful metaphor of kind of the dynamic of what was happening, which is this racial anxiety, which for some people was real. I mean, it wasn't like she was imagining a threat. She perceived a threat, whether or not I would perceive a threat or there was a threat, but guns became the answer. And and yeah. the, def the, th the very tool that was promoted to her as being the thing that was going to defend her whiteness ultimately ended up shortening her own lifespan considerably. And I oh. found that story so many times. Yeah. Well, I mean, as you note in the book, so many of the tragic stories that you're including here are emblematic of the larger narrative regarding these 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 mortal trade-offs that white Americans have been suckered into taking in order to defend this imagined sense of whiteness, this imagined sense of cultural power. Let me ask you to unpack that a bit. What are some more of these trade-offs and their consequences? It's it's I'm gonna in a way it's easy right in the South right because I'm a liberal guy in the South I'm studying people who are ideologically different from me and different from many of the people who would buy Dying of Vinus although to be clear I've gone back with the findings and I've spoken in the communities and we've had really constructive conversations about I, I just said like hey man my data shows <laughs> you're living five years shorter than you should be. Um, let's talk about that. And so in a way I've had incredible conversations. It's not like I'm just sneaking off to talk to my own team. <laughs> I've really had some incredible conversations, yeah. um, on conservative media. And I, I welcome that, you know, I welcome that. Um, and I try to be clear that health is only one access, you know, I, I'm using health data. I'm a doctor. Um, but they said, well, look, we're in power. So, uh, we feel like we made the right choice. So for them, they think I'm crazy, right? Like, why are you why are you doing something that's bad for you? And I do have to agree with them that like they're very powerfully like people who reject healthcare and buy a lot of guns are also like in power in a lot of red states. And so, yeah. you know, for them, the rhetoric that they use, they think I'm crazy. They're like, why is your side so wimpy that you're using these mortality statistics, but you're losing all the elections? And so for me, that's an interesting conversation to have. I have to give it to them that that actually <laughs> makes sense. Um, and again, it goes back to that point of people willing to lay down their lives for an ideology. Um, so that's part of it. But then for me, Honestly, I could write a whole book about COVID, um, and yeah, and it's it, in part how this this dynamic, how this dynamic shaped COVID. It shaped the COVID response that liberal America assumed that public health was the driving narrative that made sense for people, and a lot of yep. people in red state America had said, um, "Hey, man, no, actually, we believe in in power and anti government uh, mobilizing and things like that." So for me, the pandemic really, really became the marker after the book came out um, uh, the first time of, and that, that's what I read about. The pandemic was almost dying of whiteness on steroids in a way. I, um, yeah. 
And then as as I was saying before we before we started recording, I have a new book that came out, which we can talk about the next time I come back. Um that Please looks do, at yeah. looks at the mass shooting phenomenon. Um and and so I'm continuing the analysis in a new book that I've got called What We've Become that talks about really um it's it looks in much more depth at gun the question of guns. And so for me, guns and COVID are the two areas I'm focusing on in, in a lot yeah. of depth that really reinforce that initial that these initial findings. It and there and yet it's also linked. And we'll all remember, I'll never forget the almost like a genre, a video of men in in hospital wards tearfully saying goodbye into their phones to their families and saying, I wish I had listened to the experts. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of these that that filled social media and yet it's seemingly almost forgotten now. Uh, as you know, many middle and lower income white Americans through their support behind Donald Trump and, and various conservative politicians who pledge to make life great again for people like them. As the Journal of Family Medicine notes, you tapped directly into the society fractures that culminated in Trump's election. How did his policies victimize some of his own voters and yet still manage to escalate the divide? Well, for them, they're winning, right? So they feel like they're on the winning team. And so even with, I mean, it's, you could pick every single day, you know, people are scammed out of these $400 tennis shoes and um, all these other things, you know, making alliances with our arch enemies to destroy the economy of our country right now and all these things. I mean, you could just, it's like, it's like, hey, it's Tuesday. Trump's doing something that is materially bad um, for, for, but, but I would say that what he tapped into was a particular kind of grievance politics on the right yeah. in which people had not felt like, um, you know, he feels like their champion because he's articulating in ways that people were before him unable to say in public their deepest anxieties and concerns about people who are racially or ideologically different from them. Yep. And so what I argue, especially in, in the new book, but also in the new forward, is that we're not going to reason our way out of this, that we have to kind of build structures, but it's not like we're going to go down with a bunch of health data. We tried that. I mean, the pandemic was like the clearest example of like, here's the graph. Um, here's the chart. Um, as you say, here's the video <laughs> of your grandfather in the ICU. Yep. Um, but, it, but it's just that, you know, part of the story is I think it's incumbent. It's a, it's a question of strategy, right? I mean, Trump is doing something that works strategically to mobilize his base and we're not going to reason out of it with public health. In fact, public health for a lot of people, is an illustration of the very reason they support Trump in the first place. It's so true. It's so it and it's so heartbreaking. One, I mean, one of the central points of the of your book is that that the, these mortal risks of whiteness go way beyond questions of individual beliefs or biases. You say risk evolves from politics or policies that surround identities and give shape to interactions among people and communities. I agree, but what are the greater scarier ramifications of this well it just feels incredibly irrational by the framework of rationality as we think about it and so in a way like i mean i'm i'm a psychiatrist and a sociologist and i've got a long career studying like mental health and mental illness but also structural race and it's one thing to learn about that stuff like in grad school that's very abstract it's another thing to like watch people make decisions that are based in this hierarchy that feels like man i have to stay on top because i don't want to be on that on that bottom position and so yeah i mean i think we're seeing right now that it makes the work of democratic governance really hard because they're just a subset of people who are driven by an agenda that is not about communal betterment communal safety communal health or even national interest right now, if you look at what's happening with Ukraine and Russia and other things. And so in a way, you know, there's always, you know, democracy is like a form of horse trading. There's always a kind of give and take of, you know, I'll, I'll you know, our goal is to, we're all part of the same team, even if I don't agree with you. So I'll give you three and you give me four and blah, blah, blah. But, but, but I think what we see is the, you know, the end game of a lot of this is, is domination. The goal is not to, you know, work their way into the democratic system. The goal is to take it over. And so I That's think right. what Trump is mobilizing is a lot of people who are unwilling to do the work of democracy in a way, which is, which is based in compromise. And to me, that's the most terrifying part is 
I mean, the 24 election could not be more more important in a way because whether or not we, I mean, you think about it, like I'm a Democrat and I'm in coalition with like a lot of people who I disagree with about a lot of stuff. Um, and I agree with people about other stuff. But the fact that we're in a coalition means we kind of roughly have the same idea. Mm -hmm. But I think if Trump wins this next election, what we're going to see is dying of whiteness across the entire country, which is we're not going to be making decisions based in the kind of standard assumptions about what betterment is, you know, health or prosperity, well-being, safety. It's going to be this power game. And so in a way, there's a parable in these stories, which is what could happen to the entire country if we if we don't mobilize right now. Dr. Jonathan Metzl is the author. The book is essential. It is Dying of Whiteness, How the Politics of Racial Resentment is Killing America's Heartland, one of the most important books I've come across in the last year, a, a couple years, and now available in a new paperback form. Dr. Metzl, I would love to have you back to talk about your new book on guns, but also to continue this dialogue, because there's so much brilliance in here that I think is going to be very, very vital for the future of this republic, and uh, I hope you'll join us again. What is the best way for our listeners to follow you, sir, and keep up with your work? Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate the thoughtful questions. You know, these are hard questions. We're all wrestling with them. So I would love to keep talking. Um, my website is just www.jonathanmetzel.com. And it's got everything about everything I'm working and, and publishing and working on. And, and you can contact me through that. Uh, thank you very much for fighting for these conservative white people. I think everyone listening to us right now knows and loves someone exactly like who you're describing. And we've all tried reason. We've tried the Constitution, history, and the Bible. Um, maybe self-interest could do it. You are doing a great public service, and I can't wait to read your new book. Thank you so much again, Doctor. Thanks so much. Take care. 